Well, if you would take your Bibles with me and turn in them to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, we are transitioning this morning from chapter 12 to chapter 13. And I, I guess, loosely use that word transition because it is a transition of sorts. Um, It's a transition to another phase, if you will, or uh, another aspect of what Paul has already been speaking to us about. Uh, So it's not a transition to a whole other different subject as we might imagine. Uh, We are here still looking at Christian conduct. We are still studying the whole aspect of how it is we are to live and adorn the gospel in everything. And I would hope that that is becoming more and more and more clear to you as we go along and that you will see even more of it as we engage ourselves this morning in the text that I want to focus our attention on, or at least begin to focus our attention on this morning in chapter 13. So what I want to do this morning is just begin by reading for us the first seven verses And then we'll, of course, as we do, offer our time before the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll begin to look at this together. So beginning in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, because it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil... Be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Well, I think after reading that, we need to bow for a word of prayer. Father, we understand this to be your word, not the words of men, not the fabrications of some mindless person, but these are your words. From your very heart to your people, so that we would reflect you. So Lord, I pray this morning that as we begin to look at this, you would help us do that. You would help us be receptive. Help us to have our hearts and our minds open to the truth, to be changed by it, to be shaped by it, so that we would indeed be a people who adorn the gospel. 
We thank you for these things. We know that you will bless us as we walk in them. And your name will be glorified through it. In Christ our Savior, his name we pray. Amen. Now, as we begin this morning, I just want to point out a few things. As we read our own English Bibles, as you have in your lap, they sometimes do us a disservice. Even with all good intentions as they are, sometimes it's a disservice because our Bibles you have in your lap have subtitles. Subtitles that are uninspired titles that translators have put or subsections of Scripture. The uh, translators have tried to help us, of course, in our own understanding as we read the Bible, and they put in these uninspired titles in order to do that, and often they can be somewhat misleading. In fact, sometimes they're in a totally wrong place, as you might go through Scripture and connect ideas together, you'll notice that you might have a subtitle somewhere and you go, why is that there? This verse after that seems to go with the verses before that. But they're trying to help us, and yet oftentimes they're misleading. And I believe that's the case here, at least as we begin in Romans chapter 13, because you will notice, as most of your Bibles say, the title to this subsection is, Be Subject to Government. Notice that in your Bible. Maybe your electronic versions don't have that. But here, particularly in the Bible I'm using to preach from, the New American Standard, be subject to the government. And that is a misleading title because it implies that this entire section that we are dealing with is only about our obedience to government. We read that, and sometimes we'll just skip right past that because we live in a country whereby we don't necessarily like our government or the officials in government. And so when we reach a passage like this, we go, well, yeah, okay, I I know what I want to think about that, so I'm just going to move on. When in fact, that is only part of what is being taught here. And I bring that up here because the word that is translated for governing authorities in verse 1 is actually a generic term. It is a generic term that simply means anyone in authority over others. Anyone who has an authoritative position over others. In other words, it is speaking of any person who is in charge of any kind of given responsibility that includes ruling. Ruling in some kind of way. And therefore, because of that, it could be referring to a whole host of entities from those in the church who have been given responsibility of rule or to the secular entities that have been given some kind of rulership in our society or even in the home whereby parents are the magistrates within their home. So I believe that it is potentially misleading for us to limit our understanding of this text to simply the idea of government and its rules and its categories of rules. It would be wrong for us to look at this passage and just narrow it down to that very reality. 
Because Paul is speaking in a much more broad way. He's speaking with much more broader realities. He's actually dealing with, as I have entitled this sermon, someone wrote me this week and said to me in a fun way, your sermons are becoming more Puritan-like. And I just chuckled about that because when I told Debbie my title, I said, it's going to be like a Puritan title. The title, The Necessity of Self-Imposed Submission to All Authority for the Sake of the Gospel. The necessity of self-imposed submission to all authority for the sake of the gospel. In fact, Paul actually states that categorically in verse 3, when he says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Verse 2, He who resists authority. The idea is any authority. Any authority at all. And so what Paul is going to do here is that he is actually going to continue his his exhortations that we have been hearing from chapter 12. This is just another exhortation to us as Christians to adorn the gospel through the behavior of our lives, both inside the church to those who are Christians, as well and more importantly to those outside the church in the watching world. And so that they might see Christ, so that all who see us, think about that, so that everybody who sees your life, everybody who watches you from family, from friends, to co-workers, to the person in the post office line ahead of you or behind you, to the person driving on the road in front of you or passing you because they're angry, you're not going the right speed. All of those people are watching us. They're the world watching us and they need to see Christ. They need to see Christ in us. They need to see what true Christianity looks like. As the only refuge that they could ever have from the divine wrath to come. So let's not be confused as we begin. Paul is surely implying governmental rule. Why else would he say in verse 7, render to all what is due, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom customs due? That's certainly a governing aspect of our outside government, but the greater implication is that of any who have been given rulership. Any. Paul is taking his size 9 foot with his sandal on it and stepping right on our throat and cutting off our air so that we go, okay, okay, I understand what you're saying here. I need to listen up about this. It gets really serious here. These people were not living in good times, not living in times like we live. And so whether they were in the church or outside the church, the principle that they were hearing is the principle that we are hearing in these verses, and it serves several purposes. And so what is that principle? What is the overarching principle that Paul gives? Well, Paul gives it to us here in the very first verse. 
And then he goes on to explain after that the why. Why are we supposed to do that? Paul lists the principle, and then he gives several reasons as to why this reality of subjection is to happen. So notice the principle. Notice it so clearly here. You have it, I'm sure, in your own minds already. The principle laid out for us in verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. That's the principle. I find it very interesting as you look at the original language and you identify the words in the original language and kind of translate them out in a more stiffer way, if you will, or has the words are laid out in the original sentence, it would sound like this. Every soul, every soul to the governing authorities is to willingly subject themselves. Every soul. Right here, right out of the gate, we know what it is that is the principle. It isn't mistaken. It isn't hard for us to understand. You don't have to have a higher education to get it. This is for each one of us. It is the principle of personal and willful subjection. Personal and willful subjection. Or maybe we could put it in another word. It is that word we don't like to hear often. That word we recoil at comes up in every marriage conference. Submission. Submission, the hated S word. There is no greater principle, mark this down somewhere, there is no greater principle seen in your life as a child of God. There is no greater principle for those who claim to know Jesus Christ that will show the true reality of that relationship than the principle of willful submission. Willful submission. The Bible says that if we love God, then we will what? Keep his commandments. We love God, you will keep my commandments. Jesus said to the disciples, by this they will know you are my disciples when you love one another. That was the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that flows the second, love your neighbor as yourself. When we love God, we keep his commandments. The person who keeps the commandments of God, the person who is striving in their life by the power of the Holy Spirit, engaged in a, in a, in a regular, mindful, everyday reality of striving to do what God has commanded them to do, is a person who is practicing willful submission. Why can I say that? Because to submit to God is to obey God. To submit to God is to obey God. And furthermore, to submit to God is to be like Christ. To submit to the Father is to be like Christ. To be like Christ in His ultimate sense, in the way that we have been equipped to be like Christ. We cannot be God. We cannot be the deity of Christ. We are not equipped to be the deity of Christ. We will never be the deity of Christ, but we can be like Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ. We can be like Christ, and when we submit to God, we are like Christ. Because Christ always, always, and perfectly 
submitted himself to the will of the Father. Even, even when it was in the face of people and rulers who were crucifying him. Jesus submitted himself to the rule of the Father. In fact, Peter says it this way, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So right here, right here in Romans chapter 13, we are being reminded. In fact, we are being commanded. We are being commanded. It's an imperative. This is an imperative command of God. We are being commanded to a life of willing subjection to ruling authorities. You also notice, by the way, that Paul is including each and every Christian. Notice what it says, let every person. Original language, every soul. In other words, this is not just for some Christians. This is not just for the super spiritual Christians, the guys and gals who have it all right, the real spiritual ones. It's not for those who take the Bible seriously, but for those who don't really take the Bible seriously, this isn't for them. No, this is for every person who claims to know Jesus Christ, every soul. In fact, in the original language, it's exactly what it says. Every soul. And those words are in the emphatic position in the sentence. So this is what Paul wanted to get out of his mouth first. This is the most important thing of this sentence that Paul wanted to say in reality to the who of this command. Who? Every soul. Paul, who's supposed to do that? Every soul's supposed to do that. This is one aspect of this principle we cannot get wrong. Paul considered that phrase extremely important, and so he said it first. Why would Paul, these are the things that go through my mind when I'm studying this, why would Paul have to say that so emphatically? I mean, why couldn't Paul say, hey, listen, uh, this is a good suggestion for you. It's going to go good in your life if you just, you know, kind of submit yourself to those who God's put over you. Why would he have to say it so emphatically? Every soul. Well, there was a thought in the early church when you became a Christian, there was a thought that you no longer had to deal with the world. Once you became a Christian, you were in a new kingdom. You were in a new new realm. Since you belong to this new kingdom, since you were in this new place, since you're this new reality of your life, you were out of this world. And in a sense, you you all the ties that you had to this world were gone. You had no responsibility to the state, no responsibility to the rulers over you. Rulers said, pay taxes. You said, I'm a Christian. I don't have to. Rulers said, you need to do this. I'm a Christian. I don't have to. That was in the first century church. This is the kind of people that Paul is dealing with, that Paul is addressing, that he's he's writing to. This was the mantra, this was the mindset, especially to a Jew, because a Jew wasn't to have anybody else over them. 
And Jew brought all that baggage into the church. They had a problem with authority. To say that we have a real problem in our day and age with authority would be an understatement, wouldn't it? In fact, man has been throwing off the rule of authority over him ever since the garden. It's exactly what's been happening. Adam and Eve said in their hearts, we're not going to have God over us. We're not going to be under that rule. We're not going to have God rule over us. We're going to be like God. We're going to be like God. We are going to take things into our own hands. We're going to take from the forbidden tree, and we're going to rule our own lives. Of course, we know the disastrous results that followed that. Ever since that day, ever since that moment, Ever since that rose into the heart of man, the propensity of our natural heart has been to throw off all rule and authority. Nobody's going to rule over me. I am my own person. Listen, it's even engraved on our license plates in this state, isn't it? Engraved on our license plate. Live free or die. I mean, it is the motto. All right, pastor, you're getting a little too close. You're turning up the heat a little much, too close. Next thing you're going to talk about is our guns. I don't have to. I don't have to. God's already talking in your heart to you about rule and authority. I don't have to talk about that. No authority over me. That's what we say. So here's Paul. And Paul's saying, listen, you've been shown the mercy of God. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember all of the first 11 chapters? You were gone. You were were dead. You were unsavable if you can. By yourself, you couldn't save yourself. You couldn't do anything to save yourself. Even in your own mind, you thought you were okay. You couldn't do it. You were without excuse before a holy God. His wrath was upon you, and yet God, while you were his enemy, died for you. And by his mercy, he saved you. He brought you in. He he drew you to himself, brought you into his kingdom. So now you are not under condemnation, as Romans 8 verse 1 says. You have been shown this massive mercy, this massive grace of God, and it's in light of the mercy of God, in light of Him, that you live for Him. And here He's saying, here's one way you live for me. You come under the authority willingly. Willingly. Every soul. Every soul. Why? Because that is, to be disobedient is not the behavior of God's people. In fact, that kind of behavior is a very characteristic of those who are not God's people. I'll just show you this in a couple of places. Romans chapter 1. We know it well. 
Beginning in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. How? God made it evident to them. We know this. How did he do that? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. And the, and the implication is they're clearly seen by all of those who have ever been alive. It's understood through what's been made. Well, they don't have an excuse. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God, they didn't give thanks to God, they became futile in their speculations, their foolish hearts darkened, they professed to be wise, yet they're fools, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures, tree huggers, and everything else. So what's God do? Let's just have it your way. You don't want my authority, have it your way. I'll give you over to your own depravity. So God gives them over to the lust of their hearts so that their bodies are dishonored because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And the spiral continues. They just go farther and farther and farther down the rabbit hole. As God says, have it your way. Let your sin do what it does. Here's what's going to happen all because they would not have God, all because they said, He will not rule over me. He will not rule. He will not be God over me. Notice in Second Peter chapter 2, Second Peter chapter 2, Peter talking about false prophets. False prophets, those who don't know God, they're among the people. There have been false prophets, just like false teachers, who secretly introduce destructive heresies. They follow their sensuality because of them, the way of truth is maligned. In their greed, they exploit with false words. Their judgment from long ago is an idol. For if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to outer darkness reserved for judgment, didn't spare the ancient world, but Noah, the preacher of righteousness with seven others, brought them, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by reducing them to ashes, having been made an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter... Be rescued righteous lot and oppressed, uh, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For he saw and heard righteousness. He was righteous. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation to keep the unrighteousness under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those, verse 10, who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. You see, the implication of that entire text is these are people who want no one to rule over them. God's not even going to rule over us. They despise authority. They are self-willed. They don't tremble even when they revile angelic majesties. These are unprincipled people. A few books over in Jude... 
second to last book of the Bible. Same reality. Jude 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who didn't believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in the same manner, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject what? Authority. They reject authority. It's not going to rule over me. You see, to not willingly subject yourself to authority is to be like those who do not know God. Go back to Romans chapter 13, because this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in this principle. If we are going to adorn the gospel as we are commanded to in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, if we're going to have our minds renewed, not be conformed to this world, be a, a, a walking worship center for God. If we're going to adorn the gospel, our lives are going to be living sacrifices acceptable to God, lives of worship, then we better be practicing this principle in our own lives. We better be practicing this willing subjection in our own lives. Paul tells us why. Paul tells us why. And in doing so, he gives four reasons why, and a reason why we are to support authority. Four reasons why we're to submit, and a reason why we're to support Authority. Let's begin to see these reasons why. And as we begin to look at these, let's just be aware that God did not have to give us reasons. You realize that? Right? We could have verse 1 in that first sentence, let every person be subject to governing authorities. We could have it end right there and pick up for us down in verse 9, or verse 8. And all of that could have been attached to chapter 12 without a chapter break as we have it. By the way, chapter titles and chapter numbers are not inspired. They were put there for our help. So in the original, this was one just long letter. God didn't have to give us reasons, but he gra- He's gracious to us. He's gracious to us. He accommodates our foolishness. But he isn't obligated to give us reasons. And if he did not, he would not be guilty. And we would still have a requirement of subjection. And one more issue that needs to be in our minds as we begin this. When we are commanded here in Verse 1, 
to subject ourselves to ruling authority. We must not get in our minds that Paul means be subject to good authority, don't worry about bad authority. We cannot have that in our minds. In other words, we are to be subject to authority in general. We're to be subject to all authority. doesn't matter which side of the spectrum and which side of the scale we decide is good or bad. It's all authority. And we cannot be confused in our understanding of what subject oneself means. Because sometimes we get a confusion in our mind about that. Because some might say, and I don't want us to go away with this understanding, some might say that subject means to obey always. But I don't believe that is necessary for us to think like that. First, because Paul could have used other words if he wanted to say that. Paul could have used other words for obey. But here he uses a word that is used frequently all over the place, and it's more identified with what we understand, this idea of submission. Sometimes we equate submission with obedience. But we have to be careful, because if we do that in every case, if we use obedience as submission and submission as obedience in every case, it makes what we are commanded to do sometimes very impossible. And I'll give you an example, right? Ephesians chapter 5, it says that wives are to submit, same word, that's the same word for being subjection, submit, it says, to your husbands. The parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, and in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 5, wives are told the same thing, same word, submit. And they're said to do that, they're to do that as unto the Lord, right? And that brings the idea of obedience. There's an obedience idea there. But the same word is used again by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. And in 5 verse 21, the word, the verse says, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, if submit means obey, as we normally understand it to mean, then it's very difficult to see how submission within a marriage context is to happen when both people, according to Ephesians 5 verse 21, are to be obeying each other in the fear of God. If that's what Paul means by submission. If it's obedience, then how in the world in a marriage context is the wife to obey the husband, the husband then to obey the wife? How does that work? All that produces is chaos. And so I believe that Paul is saying in this expression in Romans chapter 13 of being subject to, 
All that he's saying is that we are to recognize others in their position of authority and allow that they, allow in our minds, allow in our hearts, that they have a certain claim upon us that is greater than we have on ourselves. Let me say that again. We are to recognize others in their position of authority and allow that in our own hearts and minds, to, to realize that they have a certain claim upon us that is greater than our claim upon us. And so when we bring that understanding here to Romans chapter 13, what we hear Paul saying is that we are not to look upon authority as the entity in and of themselves, but realize what they are, and what has been given to them within their position. What they are and what has been given to them. So this isn't blind or uncritical obedience. That's not what we're talking about. This isn't just do whatever. What Paul is describing here is an attitude. An attitude of our renewed mind, all of Romans 12, 1 and 2. An attitude of our renewed mind whereby we recognize and understand certain authorities are being in position and we live in accordance with that understanding as Christians. So Paul says, verse 1, why? He tells us the principle and we ask why. Here is the first why. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? Because, number one, all genuine authority is God's authority. All genuine authority is God's authority. Here's what he says. For there is no authority except from God. You can stop right there. There is no authority except from God. It is pretty simple for us to understand that. If there is power... Power in place, authority in place. The only reason that it is power at all is because it is an extension of the power of God. I'm reminded of the accounting of Jesus Christ as he's standing before Pilate after being scourged, about to be crucified. He's standing there with Pilate. And they're hurling accusations at Jesus. In John chapter 19, verses 8 through 11, Pilate hears the statement about what the Pharisees are saying about Jesus. What statement? That he claimed to be God. Pilate hears that statement, and when he hears it, he's more afraid of what's going on, and he enters into the inner sanctum, the praetorium, and he says to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus doesn't answer. Pilate says to him, listen, don't you know, you're not going to speak to me. Don't you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus says to him, you would have no authority unless it had been given to you from above. You would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. That's the very point Paul's making. 
That's the very point that Paul is trying to get us to imitate Christ in our hearts and minds. There is no authority except from God. There's no authority except from God. That's the first reason why. Be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why, Paul? Because every legitimate authority is from God. And he gives a second reason why. And those who exist are established by God. God establishes all authorities. There is no legitimate power except from God, and God is the one who establishes all authorities. In other words, all genuine authority that is an authority in existence has been established by God. Of course, Paul has in mind the governing authorities of his day. Of course he does. Of course, Paul has in mind the very authorities that are over him at the very time he writes this. And so what we hear Paul saying is that there is no authority in and of itself. There's no authority in and of itself. If it is genuine authority, then it is God's authority. And if it is God's authority, then he is the one who appointed it. He gave it its existence. He established it in its place. He has assigned it. And it is God who maintains it in its position. In other words, they are there because God has determined that they should be. You ever wonder how life would be if we just lived that for a couple days, maybe a week, two weeks? How different life would be? You say, yeah, but come on, our government, I mean, really? I mean, I say that word, I say government in our day and age right now, and immediately your mind goes to all kinds of wackiness. Our government has lost its collective mind. It's insane. Yet here we are. By providence, God has us in Romans 13. What are you talking about, Pastor? We need to be in subjection to all the nonsense and every other authority over us that doesn't have a clue? That's what God says. These aren't my words. These are God's words. Turn for a moment over to Jeremiah 27. Because I find it most interesting that this principle is all over the Scriptures. And we see it highlighted in places that we wouldn't think it would be highlighted. With authorities that we wouldn't think are really good. And in Jeremiah 27... The beginning of the reign in verse 1 of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. This word comes to Jeremiah from the Lord. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah, who spoke the word of God and nobody ever heard, nobody ever listened, nobody ever paid attention to it. The word of the Lord speaks from Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord. Speaking to the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord, make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck 
And send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, to the kings of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre, and to the king of Sidon, by messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. And command them to go to their masters, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, what? Quote, I have made the earth. This is God talking. You say to them, This is what God said. I have made the earth, the men, and the beasts which are on the face of the earth. My great power and my outstretched arm made them. God establishing who He is. I am the Creator. I'm speaking to you. You better pay attention. This is the one who even created you. I am talking. You tell them, I'm the one who made the earth. I'm the one who made them. I'm the one who makes the beast of the field that roam the face of the earth by my great power and my outstretched arm. That's who's talking to you. And I will give it. Give what? God just established his ultimate divine omniscient, omnipotent authority. I made the earth, I made the men, I made the beasts of the field to roam on the face of the earth. There's no one greater than me, and I will give it my authority to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Oh, okay, good. Somebody pleasing. This is going to go well. Verse 6, And now... I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Wait a minute. That's not how I saw it going. I gave it all to Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Bet you never thought of Nebuchadnezzar like that. God says, I gave it to him, my servant. Why? I have given to him also, not just the lands, I've given to him the wild animals of the field to serve him. And all the nations, verse 7, shall serve him and his son and his grandson. So now there's generational rule. They're going to serve him until the time of his own land comes. And then many nations and many kings will make him their servant Oh, there's going to come a time where he's going to be a servant, but for now, I've given it all to him. I've established him as authority. And it will be, get this, I'm going to talk about this in a minute in Romans, and it will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, who? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It's it's so amazing how God puts this down who will not serve him, not just good king, not just not bad king, but serve him, the one I put in authority, the one who doesn't serve him, and which will not put his neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. See, there's willing subjection. God said before, make yourself yokes, get under it. The one who will not do that, who will not willingly submit, I will punish. I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. Wow, that's that's not how I saw it going. 
not how I saw it going. God, you're, you're a good God. Do you care about your people? Yes. Yes, I do. And I care about them coming under me. And they're to come under me regardless of who I put in place in order that they might learn who I am. God rebukes them even further in verse 9. Don't listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, your sorcerers who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Bab. Don't listen to that. He said, they're saying, no, 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 you don't listen. You don't serve that guy. No way. Don't come under that authority. That's a bad king. That's an outside king. You don't serve that. Don't listen to them, God says. They prophesy a lie to you so that you would be removed far from your land. I'll drive you out and you'll perish. But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I'll let him remain in its land. They will till it. and They'll dwell in it. So the first reason that Paul gives back in Romans chapter 13 for subjecting ourselves to the authority is that they have been ordained by God. There's no authority apart from him. It doesn't matter whether we define them as good or bad. It doesn't matter. We can define, listen, I can find fault in any kind of ruler. I don't care at what level they are. Anybody that rules over me, I can find fault in them somewhere and, and find some way, subjective way of saying, see, that's why I shouldn't follow them. That's why I shouldn't come under it. And like Jeremiah there's consequences for not subjecting myself. Notice verse 2 of Romans 13. Here's some consequences. Consequence number one, to resist is to resist God. To resist this command and to resist the authority God's placed over you is to resist God. Therefore, he says in verse 2, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. I know what some of us are doing in our hearts. Okay. What's resist mean? Right? How close to the line can I get? What's resist mean? Well, here's what it means. Set yourself against. To set yourself against. That's what it means, literally. It's like a military word. It's a word where, where the military arranges its troops against the others. They set themselves against the armies that are coming, the rival. And so here's Paul in verse 2. He's saying, to resist authority... Authority that has been ordained by God, which is genuine authority, to resist that is equal to resisting God. To stand against authority is to stand against God. It's very interesting language. Because because the language is a self-imposed antagonism against God. That's that's the, the grammar here. 
It's the idea of a self-imposed resistance, a self-imposed antagonism against God. And that self-imposed antagonism has ongoing ramifications for the antagonist. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean, it says, therefore, he who resists, or the one who resists, that's in the, just to give us a little grammar lesson here, that's in the middle voice. That means you're doing it to yourself. That means you're the one who's doing the action. It's you who, who is involved in it. You're doing the resisting. You're setting yourself against, okay? That's the idea. You're willfully doing it. It's not, oh, it's happening to me. No, you're willful in this. I will not come under that authority. And then when it says they are opposed and they have opposed, right? He who resists authority has opposed. That's the same word as resist, but it's in a different uh, voice. It's in a, it's a perfect tense word, which means it's, it's a done thing with ongoing ramifications, ongoing action. So it has greater impact. It's a settled position of resistance. You put yourself there and you're settled in it and that has ongoing ramifications. Knowing you should not do that ever. So, do you want to be in a settled position of resisting God? That's the, that's the thing Paul's saying. If, if you resist God, you're, you're quickly going to get into a place where you're in a settled position of resisting God. That's a consequence. And Paul gives a second consequence in verse 2. And they who have opposed the will, opposed, those who have resisted will receive condemnation upon themselves. In other words, you resist God. Consequence number two is expect judgment from God. Just expect it. In other words, to resist God equals some kind of judgment to be brought onto yourself. So don't resist God. Just like we saw in the example of Jeremiah. The question we have then, when we think about that and we see this progression, we see this simple little equation going out, one plus one equals two. The the question comes from, okay, where's the execution of judgment come from? If there's judgment, where's it coming from? Well, ultimately it comes from God. But the execution of it comes through the established authority. I'll just give us a simple little example. You drive through Chester at 55 miles an hour, resisting the authority that's placed over you, and you see blue lights in your window, they're going to execute the judgment of God upon you. You're going to get a bill that's going to go to the coffers of Chester. You're going to help them. And they're going to smile at you and say, have a safe day. See, God meets out his judgment through the authorities he has ordained. God meets it out. And we must not rule out future judgment in this as well. We can't rule that out. Right? Because all of us Christians are going to stand before the Bema Seat of Christ, the Judgment Seat of Christ, where rewards will be handed out, or rewards won't be handed out. And some of those may not be handed out. 
because it's wood, hay, and stubble, it's burned up because we resisted God. And for those who don't know Jesus Christ, there's coming an eternal day of damnation whereby they will face an eternal hell for resisting the authority of God. But either way, to resist God's ordained authority is to resist God. That brings us to the why reason number three. Number three. We've had two reasons, two consequences. Here's the third reason, and I'll just tell it to us, and then we'll we'll end our time. We'll pick it up there next time. But reason number three is this. Rulers have a purpose. Why do we subject ourselves to ruling authorities? Because rulers have a purpose. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Rulers have a purpose. We'll pick that up next time. But I, I want to finish our time this morning just by saying this. Remember back in chapter 12, Paul said, never take vengeance into your own hands, right? Never take your own vengeance, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, right? Vengeance against others is God's business. It's not ours. And often God's vengeance is carried out through God-ordained earthly authorities. And I think Paul really wants us to understand Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15. Here's what it says. The way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. You go against God, expect life to not go well whether it's eternally as an unbeliever or in the world. As Christians, we are still in this world, aren't we? We're still here. God left us here for a time. We're sojourners. And our relationship to authority is part of our general relationship to the world around us and other people. Let me say that again. Our relationship to authority is part of our general relationship to the people around us. And so we cannot think of ourselves in some kind of isolated way. I've said this several times over the last several weeks. We cannot think of ourselves as just some isolated entity. I'm out here doing my own thing. We are not, as Christians, living in a vacuum. We're living in and amongst other Christians, in and amongst others who aren't believers. And people are doing things to us. People are stepping on our toes. They're irritating us. Our little idiosyncrasies are getting bothered. We don't like it. And we're reacting to that. And they're seeing our reaction on display. They're seeing us. They're seeing who we are on display right before their eyes. And we're displaying Christianity to them. You might even say it this way. The gospel is on display. We are walking billboards of the gospel. The question we have to ask is, is it a clear picture of the truth? Is it clear? Or is it being distorted by how I behave, how I live, how I act? And particularly here in chapter 13, how I behave towards authority. God says through the Apostle Paul, let every soul be in subjection to it. See, that's our injunction. 
That's what we are to be doing. And Paul has been giving us reasons why. So, beloved, for the sake of others, for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of God in us, let's be clear in our understanding of this, and let's be even more clear in our conformity to it. Let's do what God says for us to do. Let's not just take it and go, oh, that was really convicting. Thanks for that. What a good show today. Let me stick it on my Christian shelf of principles that I have and open the door of my library of godly principles from time to time. Let's do this. Let's actually live out for the sake of others what we are commanded here to do. See what God does with it. See what God does with it. Well, you've been very patient. We'll get to more next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for our time this morning, for the richness of this text, for how it is so clear and the implications go so far and so wide. Lord, help us to understand it rightly, that we might apply it rightly in our lives. Father, we don't know why. You allow wicked men to rule. We don't know why there are times of restlessness under authority that we are under, but we know what you have commanded us to do for the sake of the gospel. Help us do that with diligence, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.